What a wonderful morning it is to see a lot of faces here this morning. It looks like we have a pretty good crowd. And we had, what, 30s last year? I mean, last week. Last year or two. <laughs> but we're, uh, we're all here to do one thing, and that's to worship God. Our God that uh, is so grateful to have us because we're children of His. And that uh, we're all sanctified by one thing, and that is His Son. It's not by what we've done. It's not what we can do. It's what our, our Savior and our Lord can do for us to straighten out our lives and to make us redeemed. And in so, we're so grateful that, uh, that you're here, but there are a few that are not, and you can put that on this little card and then hand that in as we go along in our service today. And that you would uh, go with us in our uh, endeavors to, to help others. There's a lot of people that need a lot of help, whether it's uh, a card in the mail to them, a phone call, whatever you can do. Just help out as much as you can. <clears throat> Let's go to our Heavenly Father and we'll open our service with a prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we're so grateful that you call us your children, and that we can also call you Father. What a wonderful thing it is. It's through your Son, the blessed name of Jesus, that we come to you, Father, with our, our sins remitted because your Savior has seen us to be uh, grateful in your sight and that we want to be your children. We ask that you would be with those that aren't among us this morning, that, uh, that can't be here. We ask that you would uh, watch over them, that you would watch over us, Father, as we uh, travel this week, and that you would uh, keep us all safe from the, uh, the harmful rains that have come. But also, Father, we know that you know how to uh, stop those things that, uh, that may harm us. We know that you have the will and we ask that, uh, that you would watch over us and keep us safe throughout this week. Be with all those that, uh, that aren't here. Rest those that are <clears throat> in need of, uh, of beds, that uh, their sickness may <clears throat> leave them, could be your will. We would ask that you would be with Bill as he delivers the sermon this morning. Be with us as we commune with you, and that... Uh, we have all things in Christ's name and in his hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. I'll start over. Okay. This text is taken from the Old Testament. And in the context, we're actually, we actually see a battle, a conflict, a fight. When Jesus came to this earth, he was in a mighty conflict. He was in a battle. And in that battle, he was determined that he was going to win so that he could prevail. He could destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And the term victory in this text strongly suggests that he was in a battle. He's taking a, a position in order to win and a position in order for us to win because he says he will show judgment to the Gentiles. That's the term Gentiles means nations, and that's us. Humanity throughout all generations down this current day. And the very last verse says that in his name shall the nations trust so that he's going to prevail. He's going to fight. He's going to battle. He's going to be in a conflict. And he's going to prevail. However, as we read the text, we note that he's taking an unorthodox position in respect to his enemies. Note, it's a pacifist struggle. Note what it says. 
He says he shall not strive. He won't quarrel. He won't, he won't get into some sort of an argument with anyone. He's not going to shout in the marketplace. No man shall hear his voice. He won't cry. A bruised reed shall he not break. Smoking flax or reed he will not put out or a wick until he sends forth judgment of the victory. He won't uh, engage in what we'd normally think of as a battle or with the attitude of a warrior. At least what we're seeing in this text. And yet he will send forth judgment to victory. This text was actually an anomaly to those who were expecting Jesus to come in the person of his father David. If we look back at David, we know that David was a, was a great Lord warrior. He was a leader. He was the captain of Israel's host. Majority of people then, when Jesus came, expected him to come in that posture. That he was going to fight a battle. He was going to lead an army into victory. And as a matter of fact, we have people to this day, the majority of the what we call Christianity, believe that there's going to be a final battle like that. That Jesus is going to descend from heaven again. That he's going to lead a mighty phalanx of armies. And they're going to do a, an actual battle with the forces of evil and prevail. This text says that our leader, our commander, our warrior is not that type. He's not going to do that. He's not going to shout the battle cry, getting people riled up. He's not going to strive. He's not going to bend a broken reed. He's not going to put out a little fire, but he will bring about victory. The people Jesus came to save were looking forward to a mighty battle themselves where the earth would shake, the heavens themselves would tremble, and the fight would go on, and the leader of that battle, Jesus, would prevail, or the Christ, as, the, as they thought. To them, they, they thought that this is the way Jesus was going to gain control of the world. And if it was not a mighty conflict between armies, they at least expected him to take up the position of his father as his father faced Goliath in the Valley of Elah. Take a stone and destroy the enemy, the Goliath of our day. The demeanor of Jesus was disappointing. And he, his demeanor may be disappointing to some today. We expect, they expected, we expect a massive overhaul of wickedness and righteousness prevailing. We want it to happen. We want it to sweep in like a mighty wave, the phalanx of armies, overcoming the enemies of righteousness, defeating them, putting the foot on the neck of the enemy. Jesus was disappointing, disappointing to some. He came to earth from a lowly family, born in an obscure part of an obscure country. His behavior was anything but violent or aggressive. He was not an aggressive man. He was gentle, 
with those who came to him. He was patient with those who misunderstood him. He was empathetic with those who were sick and with caregivers who brought their their broken friends and diseased family to him. He was kind in his understanding. He was understanding in his counsel. He did not retaliate kind for kind. With those who attacked this person, he counseled his followers to love their enemies. And he loved his. He counseled his followers to turn the other cheek. And he turned his. He advised believers to forgive their enemies and he forgave his. We know he did. On the cross he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When Jesus and his apostles were confronted with a mob, armed with an armed mob in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter drew his sword. He was ready to engage the enemy. Peter drew his sword and cut off a man's ear. Jesus told him to put back his sword. He said, don't you know, Peter, that if, if I were to call upon my father right now, he would give me 12 legions of angels. That's over 72,000 armed warriors. He said, don't you know I could call my father? If it was this kind of fight, I could win it. We know it could. And when Pilate confronted him, and he said, are you a king? Jesus said, well, you said it. And he, and he said, if, if I were a king of this earth, he said, I would call forth my father for his angels and he would send servants and they would fight that I would not be taken. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Friends, what are we expecting Jesus to do to overcome his enemies when we read the pages of the New Testament? We know that he came to defeat the devil. We know that. To challenge the enemy of all righteousness and to surrender his power, to make the devil surrender his power over humanity. And the devils believed when he confronted the devil. Do you know what they believed? They said, are you come to destroy us? That's what they thought. He was coming to destroy them. Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 2 at verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now that doesn't mean that he was going to kill the devil, but he was going to somehow destroy the power of the devil. Jesus engaged in a terrible conflict. He engaged in a mighty struggle to free mankind from the consequences of sin and death to destroy the power of the devil. He was not in conflict with man, with mortal people. He wasn't. Matter of fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 56, he says, the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So he didn't come to get into a fight with us. He came to battle the devil somewhere, somehow. He was fighting for man. He was struggling with the devil for the freedom of the captives and my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ. He won. He prevailed. We know that he did. 
Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 through 10 says, Wherefore he says, When he descended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. You know, you know who gives gifts? To the victor go the spoils. So that means that when Jesus ascended back into heaven, to the victor went the spoils. He gave life to those who were in death. He handed out gifts. Now he that ascended, what is he? What is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Now this came about because there was a promise made back in Genesis chapter 3. Now I want, I want to rush to tell you something. I don't understand why it all played out this way. I have no idea. I have no clue. And I don't know that anybody else does. Why did it take so long? Why did it happen this way? What were the what were the scenes behind the scenes? What was going on in the mind of God? We have the mind of God and the mind of Christ, which we have in the New Testament. But we don't know all the reasons why. Well, one day maybe we'll understand why this pageant unfolded as it did. But we know soon after man got into the Garden of Eden, he fell out. He, he fell into disfavor with God because his enemy approached him got him to do something that God told him not to do. And so in confronting that enemy, in Genesis chapter 3, the record tells us, that's the only way we know about it, the record tells us that the Lord was speaking to the devil, and he said unto the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon your belly you will go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It will bruise your head. Her seed. And he's talking about, we know now, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to bruise the head of the devil. But he said, and you shall bruise his heel. The devil will take him down into the bowels of Hades. We know that when he, when he died. But Jesus overcame. The prophecy portended a mighty struggle between the Son of Man and the devil. Now we are able through the pages of the New Testament to observe this struggle. We can see it. We can see it play out. We can see the battle. The first interchange between the devil and and Jesus is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not recorded in John, the accounts of the life of Jesus. John doesn't record it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They record the fact that Jesus was in a struggle with the devil face to face. Man to man, if you would. Mono e mono, hand to hand. Now, Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we see... What we see when we read the account of Matthew chapter 4 is that there were three, three things that the, the devil tempted Jesus with. Turn this, these rocks into bread, he said. And the next one was, he said, uh, put yourself up on a high temple and cast yourself down and let the angels sweep you up. Make an impression. And the third was, he said, just bow down and worship me and I'll give you everything you ever, your heart's desire because I own everything in this world. 
Now that's all we saw. But you know what Mark tells us? Mark says he was 40 days in the wilderness with the devil tempting him. Now you think about that. 40 days, one month and 10 days. 40 days, Jesus was alone with the devil and the devil was nipping at him every minute of every day. Trying to get him to betray his father. Trying to get him to crumble under the heaviness of hunger. Trying to get him to doubt what he was doing. Trying to get him to wonder about what his father had in mind. Trying to get him to, to say, well, wait a minute, maybe we can do this another way. The devil was after Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights trying to get him to sully his character, trying to get him to say something wrong, trying to get him to think something wrong, trying to get him to feel something wrong, working at his character, telling him, why are you doing this? Bringing up all sorts of doubts and all the dimensions that he could of how he should do something besides what he was told to do. The devil was after him. And we can see, as we go on, we can recognize that the fight between Jesus and the devil was not an ordinary altercation. It wasn't a fist fight. It wasn't a wrestling match. It wasn't a sword fight. It wasn't a scuffle in the dust. Here's what it was. The devil was trying to get Jesus to betray his father and himself and you. So he's trying to get him to do. Trying to get him to crumble. Trying to get him to give up. Trying to get him despondent. Trying to get him to sink into depression. Trying to get him into a rage. Trying every trick he could, every temptation he could bring to Jesus to get him to do something wrong. Forty days. Forty days. It was a struggle that took place within the heart of Jesus. That's where the battle was going on. That's where the fight was. In his heart. The devil was after his allegiance. Turn away. He wanted to persuade him to transgress. To lure him into sin. To sully his heart. To sully his reputation. To ruin him. To make him just like us. Make him as weak as we are. He was man. He was in the form of man. He had all the feelings that we have. But you know what? He wasn't alienated, and yet the devil wanted to alienate him. The conflict, the conflict that Jesus had, he won the victory, we know that. And there was a battle, we know that too. Where was it? The nature of the battle was a battle of temptation trying to get him to do something wrong, trying to trying to destroy his faith in his father, trying to get him to doubt what his father wanted him to do, trying to get him to say something, to think something, to feel something that would betray his father and betray himself. And the location of that, the nature of the conflict was that, and the location was inside of him. Nowhere else. Inside Jesus. 
in him. That's where the fight was. That's where the devil brought the fight. Okay. After this initial engagement, we can read the New Testament and we can see that time and again, individuals popped up to try to get him to do something wrong. For instance, the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1 came to him and tempted him saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign. It says they tempted him. They tried to get him to do something wrong. What did, what did they want him to do? Well, shoot something down the, with the with the thunderbolt, with the with the with the uh, lightning strike. Do something. Make something grow that shouldn't be grown. Do something out of the ordinary. Show us a sign. That's how they tempted him. The, the Pharisees came to him and wanted to get him wanted to get him into a bicker about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Because you know you can hurt somebody's feelings pretty quickly about that subject. When marriages fail, that, that's a very tender subject, isn't it? When marriage is on the rocks, that's hard. And when divorces come about, that's so sensitive. So the Pharisees wanted to get him into this kind of a quarrel so he could hurt somebody's feelings. So he could hurt someone. So they could get him and catch him in, in something that, that would ensnare him and, and get the favor of the people against him. Jesus said, you don't, uh, your, your problem is you, you don't understand the scriptures. You don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Chapter 22, verse 19, or 39, he said. The Herodians came to him and said, why don't, why don't we, uh, why don't we get him in a conflict with, with the Romans? Why don't we get him on a political issue? They said, is it right to give tribute to Caesar or not? The political question. Let's talk politics. Let me have your opinion. I'll give you my opinion. We can fuss about it. We can hurt each other's feelings. What did Jesus do? He took a coin and said, you give whatever Caesar has, give it to him. Whatever God, give it to him. They didn't, they didn't have anything else to say about that. The lawyers came to him and said, well, we'll get you on this one. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Tell us, what, which, which one is right? How about the number four? How about number five? Number six? How about covetousness? Is that the worst one? How about murder? Is that bad? How about adultery? How about that one? How about lying? Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second like unto it. Okay, where was the fight? We know the location. We know the nature of the fight. We know the location of the fight. And here, here is the method that it takes. Okay, James details it for us. Here it is. Here's how it works. Here's how the fight goes on. Every man is tempted. Now, Jesus was a man. He took upon himself the nature of man. Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 and so forth. Texts like that tell us that Jesus had the nature of a man and so does Hebrews chapter 2. But here it says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. That's how the devil comes to you. He tempts you because of your own weakness. What you want. That's what lust means. What I want. So he said, you're enticed. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. There's, there's the steps. 
Temptation, lust, sin, death. Jesus won that battle. He won that battle. That's the way the devil approached him. He tempted him for what he thought Jesus would want. Forty days and forty nights he went at it, trying to find some chink in the armor of Jesus. And he was, uh, he was, he was determined that he was going to get him. But Jesus won that battle and he rose from the grave a victor over the power of Satan and he took away the sting of death because Jesus never sinned. Though he was a son and he suffered these things, but he didn't sin. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says, We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. It became him for whom all things are and by whom all things are in bringing many sons unto glory to make their captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 14 says, Though he were son, he did not sin. He was tempted like as we are, just like we are, but he did not sin. So, he won. He was victorious. When he went into the grave, he took the power of the devil and took the power of the devil away because the devil could not keep him in death. I don't know. I don't know why God allowed all of that. I have no idea. But I do know this, that when my Savior went into the grave, he knew what he was doing and what he had to do in order to overcome. And basically, what Jesus was doing, and when he overcame, what Jesus was doing was opening, unlocking a door that no other human being could unlock. And that door and that lock was your heart. Nobody else can unlock your heart. Nobody. I mean it, nobody. Oh, you say my lover did. Well, they unlocked a portion of it. <laughs> but they, and you know, it's, it's a very obvious, I think, human experience will tell you that regardless of how much influence one person has over another, they cannot change that person. There's only one individual ever, ever, ever that's been able to change the character and the nature of an individual, and that's Jesus. And he did it this way. This is how he did it. And the significance of that battle that Jesus had, and the fact that he won by the what is it, by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. The significance is that he is able to save us from death itself. That he gave his life so that we could live. It was a life or death struggle. Now, when I was younger, I, I did some fighting. And I shouldn't. I fought. I fist fought. I fist fought stuff like that. And I'm ashamed of it now. But at the time... The one concern I always had was I don't really want to get into a life or death struggle. It can happen. Or you're in a struggle where you know if you lose, you're dead. Jesus was in a life or death struggle. And it wasn't just his life he was struggling for. It was yours and mine. If he had not won... The significance of his victory is that he won for all of us. Had he lost, I don't think we could even imagine the world, the condition the world would be in today 
if Jesus had lost that battle, if he had lost that fight, I'm not even sure the world would be here if he had lost. That's, that's the significance of that battle. What kind of battle was it? It was a battle taking place inside Jesus, in his heart, in his life. It was a battle to destroy his character. It was a battle to destroy his faith in God. It was a battle to destroy his reputation. It was a battle to destroy his integrity. It was a battle to consume him and make him doubt everything, to make him doubt you, to make him doubt me, to make him doubt his father. It was a battle for him. And my friend and neighbor, you know what's going on today? We're in that same struggle. The struggles that we engage in are the same as those that our Lord encountered. The same battle. The same fight. We're fighting the same enemy. And we're fighting on the same grounds. It's the same nature of the battle that we're fighting. If we lose, we're going to lose ourselves. If he lost, he would lose himself and everybody else. If I lose, I'm just going to lose myself. But if he lost, he lost us all. He didn't lose. Second Corinthians chapter 10 at verse 3. Be aware of this. If we're in a fight, when you face unrighteousness and sin, you, you cannot attack that in somebody else. The attack that you have has to be attacking something in you, not in them. Not in somebody else. I'll get to that in just a second. But right now we need to think about where our battle is, where our fight is. I'm not fighting with you. I'm not fighting with the Democrats. I'm not fighting with the Republicans. I'm not fighting with the lawless. I'm not fighting with the House of Commons. I'm not fighting with anybody in this world. I'm fighting with the devil and the grounds where I'm fighting is in my heart. Not in your heart. In my heart. That's the battle I have. That's the fight I'm, I'm engaged in. If I'm going to win with Jesus, and I can't win without Him, if I'm going to win, I have to be sure I'm, I'm on the right ground, doing the right fight, in the right place. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. So if I'm going to fight evil, I'm not going to go out and quarrel with evil. I'm not going to strive with evil. I'm not going to fuss with evil. I'm going to fight evil where it is. It's in me. But wait a minute. No, this other guy, he's the guy doing wrong. So how do I fight that? The only way I can fight evil in you is to introduce to you to someone who can help you get out of your evil. The only one that can get in your heart to take care of that problem is named Jesus. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I can't get in your heart and I can't fight in there for you. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm in my battle with evil within myself. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The conflict that I have in this world with the devil is in the same place that Jesus had his conflict. It's in my heart. And that's the battle going on. 
I can't win that battle. I can do all things, Paul said in Philippians 4, 7, through Christ which strengthens me. All things through him. Paul said, I'm dead, yet I'm not, yet I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The only way I can win my battle of faith, my battle of discouragement, my battle of doubt, my battle of hatred, whatever battle I may have in myself, my conflict, I can win that through Jesus. He's the one that can help me win that battle. It's not with others or against others, and it's not because we can be openly hostile to others. We're, we're told, Jesus said we're told to love our enemies. you know why? you know why you're told to love your enemies? You say, well, it'll do them good. I don't know whether it'll do them good or good or not. But I do know it'll do you good. Wow. You, know, you mean Jesus told me to love my enemies so it'll do me good? Yes. Will it do anything to my enemies? Who knows? They may see goodness and they may, they may ask me where I got it and I can tell them about Jesus, but I, I can't love my enemies into any situation or any condition. But it does help me. It changes Bill. When he tells me to forgive my enemies, what good does it do my enemy to forgive him? Jesus talked to Peter in Matthew chapter 18, Peter said, how, how often should I forgive my enemies? Forgive my those that sin against me. So seven times, Jesus said 70 times seven. Why? Get it out of your system, Peter. Get it out of your system. Win the battle. The devil is telling you to get revenge on your enemies. The devil is telling you that your enemy did something to you and it hurt your feelings and therefore soured you on your enemies. Therefore, he tainted your view of your enemy. Jesus said, forgive. Forget it. Get it out of your system. Why? Does it help my enemy? May make him feel better. I know when I sin and do something wrong and ask somebody to forgive me, it makes me feel better. It doesn't do me any good, generally. But I know it did them good. It does me good to forgive you. I can't get you to forgive me. If you do, it makes me feel good because I know that you have a forgiving spirit. However, when we're, when we're openly hostile with others, it hurts me more than them. And we're told that we can defeat despair with hope. Now, let's talk about what responsibility we have toward other people in terms of winning the fight of righteousness. How do we get people to change? How do I get someone to change their, their bad habits? How do I get someone to change their attitude toward God? How do I get someone to change their disposition of life? How do I get someone to quit sinning? The way I do it, Paul said we have to fight the good fight of faith. What I do is I tell them about someone who can help them. That's all the responsibility I have. I'm told to go, therefore, and preach the gospel to every creature. I introduce you to Jesus Christ who can help you get out of your situation that help you overcome that help you overcome your temptations that will make you stronger but the only way that this world is going to change is if they hear about Jesus we're, we're to be ready to give unto every man an answer for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear that's what the Bible says so I'm what, what my responsibility is in this terms of in terms of 
correcting everything is not to get in a quarrel with people over religious issues, over political issues, over neighborhood issues. My responsibility is, if I have responsibility toward them, is to introduce them to someone who can help them as well as the one who helps me. And then I depend upon Jesus to help me overcome the enemy that's in my life daily. So, I know I can't do it by myself. I cannot. There's no strength in me. I cannot overcome my determination or my inclination to feel bad when somebody says something wrong to me. I, I can't overcome that by myself. Can you? Can you overcome it when somebody that you love or somebody you, you care for hurts your feelings? How do you overcome that? I can't do that. If you can, it's because Jesus is there to help you overcome that sensation. He's there to do it. When I get down and I get disappointed in people, and I think, why, why, why would a person act like that? My disappointment can carry over if I'm not careful. How do I get over that disappointment? Well, you say, if that person acts better, that helps. When my kids be, misbehave when they were little, that's, they misbehaved, made me feel better when they behaved. It always makes us feel better that way. But in order to get over that deep down disappointment we may have in humanity, we have to depend upon Jesus to step in and lift our spirits and turn the lights on. That's what the Bible says. He's the light of the world. He's the one that lights up our lives. So unless I let him in, and it's a matter of faith, isn't it? Do I believe in God? Do I believe that God has a place for me? Do I believe that God can take care of me? Do I believe that God will forgive my sins? Do I believe that God will take care of my needs? That will make sure that I have what I need to get through this life? Do I believe that God will meet me in heaven and take care of me? It's a matter of faith, isn't it? And so I pray, Lord, like the man did that brought his son to Jesus one time and he said, uh, and that the, the apostles couldn't cast the devil out. And so when that happened, Jesus cast the demon out of the boy and uh, the father came and asked why that didn't happen. He said it was a matter of lack of faith. And he said, the, the man, the father said, Lord, help my faith. That's what we say. Lord, help my faith. I want more faith than you that will lift me up. Let me tell you this. You have the potential of a victory in Jesus. You can win. You're all winners because Jesus is a winner and He lives in you. Thank you.
He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, amazing grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. He paid that debt at Calvary. He cleansed my soul and set me free. I'm glad that Jesus did all my sins erase. I now can sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. One day he's coming back for me to live with him eternally. Won't it be glory to see him on that day? I then will sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord.
I assume everybody's got their cup with the bread. Uh, I may want to start peeling back the seal initially, since it is not easy to do. We now have the privilege and the honor to remember Jesus Christ, the only person that God ever sent to win the victory that we might, ourselves, and the whole world have eternal life through our faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his righteousness before God. There is no other person, no other battle, no other memorial that ever can remind us of that. It's just Jesus' victory over sin. Man has set forth many battles and victories to remember. Most are forgotten, none of which did anything to improve anybody or anything in the world in the end. Only Christ can do that through his victory in our hearts to believe and to obey. Let's now give the prayer for the bread. Our most lovely Heavenly Father, be thankful for this bread, which in our minds and hearts and soul reminds us of his body on the tree, given for our lives and for the lives of the world. We pray my partake of this in a manner which be well-pleasing to thee. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray for the fruit of the vine. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this fruit of the vine, which to us reminds us most completely of Christ's blood set upon the cross. That the whole world may come to him, him alone, for salvation. To our belief in his death, burial, and resurrection, and his reigning in heaven now for those who believe in him. We pray that we always do this with full knowledge and understanding in our souls. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have the closing prayer. Our Father, we thank Thee for the privilege we have to gather here with souls alike precious faith, to commune with Thee, to listen to Thy message proclaimed, which will save our souls and save the world. There's no other than Thy word, Thy love, and Jesus Christ who can save us and help us and anybody else. You pray may be with us throughout this day throughout our week. Be with those who are physically ill, Father. Your hand of mercy may be with them and help them. 
to be strong with thee, that thy spirit may be with them, guide them, and that we may always remember those who are grieving and need help. Watch over us now and help us with our love and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.